Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor for print and digital content and publications here at EAA. Sitting here on my left, it's... I'm Chris Henry. I'm the EAA Museum uh, Programs Coordinator. And over there across the table doing an absolutely terrible impersonation of Tom Charpentier. <laughs> Joining us is... Sarah Nissler, Digital Managing Editor. So uh, Sarah, she got her job title right. Yes, that's know. true. Yeah, you're, uh, you, and, <laughs> and so my name. You've got yeah. your name right, your job title right. Uh, um, your hair is neatly combed. So so far, uh, on the Tom Sharpentier scale, you're a zero. Yeah, better. But better we're watch still. Yourself, Tom. Yes, we're still glad to have you here sitting in, and uh, joining us remotely, we've got a couple of guests. Sarah, why don't you uh, tell us who they are? Sure, we have Corey Robin and Trent Palmer. They're a couple guys from the Flying Cowboys who are out there promoting general aviation and doing a lot of fun flying. So we're gonna learn a little bit about them. So they're out there doing the fun stuff while we're sitting here in a basement in the rain, <laughs> in the nonstop rain in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. But we have no complaints. We've got some of the I have jobs. several complaints. Okay, Chris has several complaints. Uh, we'll, we'll cover those after the show. So we've talked about this before. So, uh, so Corey and Trent, welcome to the show. We're really glad you guys could take some time to join us today. And, Thank you. Uh, um, uh, Whichever one of you wants to start off, give us uh, give us a quick little bit of background on how you got uh, got into flying. Well, um, Trent, do you want to take this one first? No, I, th I think you can lead, Corey. You've been doing this longer, and, uh, and you're better Ouch. at uh, this stuff. Oh, <laughs> no, after Ouch. you, I insist. <laughs> no, you know, I've been flying since I was, uh, you know, a, a snot-nosed brat. I was about 14 years old when I started flying, and so it's it's kind of been my thing for a long time and you know it's so far it's not something I've even tried to kick so I I've you know loved it from the moment I started uh, that moment you take that first flight and everybody who's experienced that and you watch the ground sink away uh, it's just a very special experience every time and so how I got into flying is is kind of a long story but I'll make it super short I was in second grade I was assigned to do a report a hundred word report and out of happenstance, just randomly, my mom took me to the library and I checked out a book on the P-51 Mustang. Done. I was hooked. And that was it. And that's all it took. Now, did you have any aviation uh, people in your family, in your background, any other pilots, anything like that? I did have a great uncle. So that's my grandmother's brother, who was an air ambulance pilot. But I didn't really have, he lived in a different state. And, and I only saw him in like family reunion situations. And I do remember him talking about it. But, uh, you know, I can't say that, you know, his stories really piqued my interest. Because for him, it was more of a job, the flying side of it. And so I didn't really experience that. So, yes, I did have somebody in my family. But... Really, it's my that, that just that report and the wonderful story. If you haven't learned about how the P-51 and the timeline and how quickly they got it together and how amazing of an airplane it is, and it's still the staple fighter of World War II, uh, it, it's an amazing story. And I, I do encourage anybody who is interested in that story to, to check it out because it's fantastic. Have you, uh, have you flown one yet? I have. You bet. Excellent. I flew for the Commemorative Air Force for about 15 years. I didn't get checked out, fully checked out in the P-51, but I did get several rides in it. Oh, that's excellent. So, so Trent, how about you? What was uh, your first uh, introduction to the world of flying? 
Yeah, my, you know, I, I guess my story's quite a bit different than Corey's because I actually got pushed into flying out of necessity. It's not, it's a weird story because as a kid, I grew up always into flight and um, fascinated by aviation, but I only, I was too scared to get into an airplane. Even the airlines terrified me. So I mostly just flew radio controlled aircraft and that's what led me to my career, which I, I fly drones in the film industry. I shoot like features, movies, episodic TV shows, commercials, all that stuff. And in 2014, the FAA required that commercial drone operators get their private pilot license. So it was that that pushed me into it. And honestly, the first 20 hours of my training was was miserable. I was so scared, so sure that I was going to die in an airplane, just unjustified fears. Um, and then it was something clicked just after 20 hours, and uh, all of a sudden I loved it. And by the time I, I got my, uh, my my ticket, I was like, okay, what, what plane am I buying? And I've just been hooked ever since. Uh, that's excellent. So, uh, as an aside, can you are you uh, at liberty to tell us any of the the features TV stuff you've worked on, where we where we might have uh, seen your work? Yeah, I mean, we shoot most of what we do. Our bread and butter is car commercials. So, a lot of like the Subaru commercials you see on TV, we shoot a oh. ton of those. Um, we did shoot on that Chips movie that just came out, the one with Dax Shepard and Michael Pena. Um, I love that. There was movie. a there was a movie that came out recently, The Nice Guys. We shot on that. Um, the circle with Tom Hanks. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. That that sort yeah. of uh, Facebook esque uh, thriller. Uh, Tom Hanks and uh, uh, Emma Emma Watson, Hermione. Yep, yep, exactly. We shot on that one. Oh, very cool. Um, and then do a lot of the Visit California ads. Uh, a lot of those are, are are stuff we've worked on. I'm trying to think what else. Polaris. We do a lot of their vehicle launches and their um, their stuff. And then there's some other episodic TV shows, but I can't say which ones they are, but they're the, the high-end Netflix ones that are airing currently that we're shooting for the next season of that I'm not supposed to talk about. But a few really? of those fun Netflix shows that everyone gets really into. We're going to have to talk more about this quietly and offline. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm, when I'm not here, I'm probably binging exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Oh, so That's awesome. I know we're going to talk about uh, backcountry flying, but for people who are Maybe hearing that for the first time, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly that means? What is that? Well, backcountry flying is utilizing your aircraft to go and really experience nature, to get out and get away from the asphalt and land on uh, non-asphalt surfaces. And so um, it's not necessarily going out and pioneering a new area and being the first person to land there, but that is a part of backcountry. But backcountry can be considered just use, utilizing your aircraft to just get away from the normal asphalt airport, if that makes sense. So I consider backcountry going and landing on, you know, the Johnson Creek Airport, which is a 3,000 foot long grass strip in the mountains. That's backcountry flying. And that's quite abnormal for most pilots. They've never experienced something like that. And so getting out and enjoying nature. And, uh, you know, doing stuff with your airplane that you just haven't considered doing before. Okay, so talk about um, each of your airplanes, why you fly, the ones you do, and, like, what it means to you to do this type of flying. Well, uh, Trent flies a, a, a Kit Fox. Do you want to talk about the Kit Fox first, and then I'll talk about my little Super Cub? Either way works for me. I'm ha Yeah, so 
I fly a Kit Fox. It's a, a Series 5 Kit Fox, which has the STI, which is Stolen-inspired uh, wing and landing gear package, which is essentially their short takeoff and landing package on it. Um, it's pretty similar to the current model Kit Fox, although mine is 20 years old. It's uh, a lot of the, the current Kit Fox components fit on my plane. Uh, so mine is essentially a mix between the Series 5 and the current Series 7 at this point. Um, the reason I chose the Kit Fox originally was just because the, the acquisition costs and the operating costs were so low. And I, I bought it sight unseen. I'd never been around a Kit Fox, never ridden in a Kit Fox. It just sounded like a, a fun airplane. So uh, I, I liked the idea of a tailwheel. Like, again, at the time, I wasn't a tailwheel pilot, so I didn't even have that rating or endorsement. And uh, it just sounded like a fun challenge, and I liked the idea that it could get out and do some you know, backcountry flying. I had no idea it was as capable of an aircraft as it is, but um, it's been a fun one because it's grown with me. The, the plane itself has changed a bunch as my flying has changed and my demands have changed. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. You know, one of the common things about backcountry airplanes, most of them are experimental, and that makes it very exciting. It, you can you can modify them. You can put on things like stole kits, and stole is really short takeoff and landing. You can do things to make them fly slower throughout the air. So, one of the things that I like to say uh, to somebody who's considering getting into backcountry flying. And, and, you know, everybody thinks, oh, these backcountry pilots are so good. They're such good pilots. They can land on a dime and they can stop really short. Well, we fly the easiest possible airplane you could possibly fly. So I fly a Super Cub. It's, a, it's actually made by a company called Cub Crafters. It's a Carbon Cub Experimental. And I just love these bush planes. They're so awesome. They fly super slow. You know, for example, Trent, my aircraft stall in the 30s. They are, I mean, you're, you're, you're almost running speed when you come in for a landing. In fact, we have a funny video uh, that, that we put up uh, of uh, one of our members of the Flying Cowboys foot racing a Super Cub. <laughs> you know, because we wanted to demonstrate, hey, these aircraft are super slow. And the, and the Cub doesn't touch his wheels on the ground at all, the whole flyby. And you've got a guy running alongside it. Wow. Uh, absolutely amazing. So to get into backcountry, you just want to find the aircraft that can, it's the easiest to handle. And so that's what these modifications typically do. And Trent Scott, in, on his, uh, his aircraft, just about every type of modification that you could possibly commercially purchase, and then some that he's done himself. And we're just getting started. And that's what's so fun about the experimental aircraft world is within the realm of safety and, you know, things that are proven and some things that are experimental, you can go out and you can modify these aircraft to meet that specific requirement. That specific requirement being, hey, I want to land on this little ridge line that's 150 feet long. <laughs> Or I want to land on this little plateau that's really short and the density altitude's really high and my ground speed's really high, but I still got to get it stopped. And so the brakes got to work, the airplane's got to fly slow, and then I've got to be able to accelerate to get off of it. And, you know, there's all these little factors that we, that we, uh, that we bring into the picture as we're 
modifying and flying our aircraft. And it's just so fun and exciting. And, you know, going back to the Super Cub, I mean, it's been around since the 40s. It's basically a modified Piper J3 Cub. It, you know, very, very, very similar. The DNA is very, very close to that. But it's just modified to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more horsepower. Maybe the cabin's a little bit wider and longer so that you can fit more baggage and haul more stuff. But fundamentally, these are very simple to operate aircraft. And that's a common thing upon, among most backcountry aircraft is you don't want to get into the backcountry in a ridiculously difficult to fly aircraft like a Wilga, for goodness sakes. <laughs> yeah, who does that? Wow. Let's not mock our Polish brethren <laughs> or, or their... Uh... Yeah, or their Romanian-inspired forebears. Um, <laughs> no, no, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. And then we have Draco, which is a highly modified Wilga in our group. And, and I actually have about uh, uh, 2,500 flight hours in a Wilga myself. I used to own and operate one myself. But uh, I think that's you know, when we, uh, the first time we met in person was uh, when you had your Wilga here in Oshkosh. I think that was the first time. But anyway, I remember chatting with you about it and, uh, and uh, trying to con you out of, a, out of a ride, which one of these days we'll figure that out. Yes, we, we, we'll do that. We'll do that for sure. After me, obviously. A, after Sarah, of course. Because, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. yeah, because, uh, you know, she clearly deserves it more than the rest of us. Um, so, you well, did, you know, I love giving rides. So, you know, one of, the, one of, the, one of my favorite things to do is, is share what I love with other people, even people that have experienced it before. So I, I have no, there's no litmus test. I don't interview you and say, you've never flown before. Are you sure? You know, I, right. I'll take anybody flying. That's excellent. Well, then uh, the fact that you have no standards means I've got a shot. <laughs> I, uh, that's what I like to hear. So you guys are talking about stall speeds down in the 30s, and then you're talking about landing on ridgelines 150 feet long, things like this. What? Uh, um, give me some, some, some quick and dirty numbers. Like what are typical landing distances, takeoff distances? Uh, for for each of your airplanes, well, you know, for the for the Kit Fox, I, I, it's it's hard to say for me because I'm never flying that light and I'm never flying at sea level. So at Oshkosh, it was a whole different uh, world than what I see on any given day up here. You know, my my home airport's at five thousand feet, and our playground normally goes up from there. Um, solo with you know without too much baggage or any of that or, or you know, without fully full tanks, I'm I'm normally in the 200 foot range for takeoff as well as landing. Wow. Um, I can land shorter than I can take off just because uh, my current motor setup is not quite as powerful as what I'd like. I'll be changing that soon, but um, yeah, sea level, I, I'm I'm closer to the 100 foot mark at least on landing. Takeoffs a little more, like 160. And uh, very quickly, not to interrupt, but what engine do you have in the airplane right now? I'm running a Rotax 912S, okay. the 100 horse. The The one I'm using is a, a one I pulled off a different airplane that's pretty old and pretty tired. So uh, I'm hoping to be shifting soon to the, the new Rotax 915, which is the turbo fuel injected one. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah. He says he hopes, but the purchase has been made. He's just waiting for delivery. This is wow. happening. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, I, I am so excited for Trent to get that powerful motor. Um, because he's already kicking our butt with 100 ponies. What's he going to do with more? It's going to be awesome. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. Well, I just wanted to ask you guys, what does a normal trip look like 
uh, or flight look like in one of your airplanes, like from takeoff to landing, type of fields, that kind of stuff. What, you know, what's that look like? What altitudes do you go at? Things like that. Map of the Earth. <laughs> you know, yeah. typically, you know, Trent and I actually do several trips a year, and and typically, like for example, our Oshkosh trip, we just kind of point our nose towards Oshkosh, and our, you know, luckily with today's technology, you can do things in the air like check notams. Uh, verify that fuel's available, and all those things are available on board the aircraft. And so the flight planning isn't all sitting at a desk and having to get out your charts and your maps and everything. It's a, you know, t in today's world, it's a little bit different. And so as a backcountry pilot, you know, we 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 top off the tanks, we point our nose that direction, and then the fun begins. And it's almost sometimes a contest to see who can find the most landing spots. You know, is this BLM land? Is it public land? Is this state land? Is this legal to land on? Hey, do we know this this rancher? Um, and we, you know, I've been coming to Oshkosh since 1997, and I've probably landed at every airport in between Utah, California, and Oshkosh. And... Um, and lots of non-airport locations. And so we've we've got on our map all these little spots of all the farmers we've met or all the private strips or all the grass runways or all the dirt runways, um, you know, because landing on, on asphalt is actually not good for big bush tires. It chews them up. So we tr really try hard to land off airport as much as possible. Um, but that's kind of how our flights go. Trent, do you have anything to add or to take away from that? Yeah, no, no, I mean, uh, you covered it pretty well. It, it is funny. I think we, we tend to cruise at a lot lower of an altitude than most people. Um, a lot of times I think we justify it because there's a headwind, but also because it's a lot more fun down there. And our planes, uh, everything happens so much slower that I feel like they're safer in that realm than, you know, I wouldn't go doing that in a Bonanza or a Lance Air or something like that. But, um, and in the event of an engine out, you know, we have a lot more options. So, I normally think uh, maybe that's just my justification, but we spend a lot more time down kind of enjoying the sights and checking things out and the wildlife and all that. You would be blown away what we've seen through Wyoming, Corey, what, last year? Man, we were down there just, just everyone screaming, there's elk over here, there's antelope over here, oh, there's an eagle. And the the, the amount of wildlife we were seeing and, and all the stuff we were experiencing on, on a cross country was probably a little bit outside the norm of what most people see. Right. Yeah, we call that the safari leg. I, I don't think that there's a, a flying trip that goes by since then that we don't bring up the safari leg. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. So, Trent, I see you meeting up with a ton of different people out there in your videos. Like, what's going on there? Are you just looking for people to have good flying fun with or the deal. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's kind of the law of attractions and when people have similar interests and they end up crossing through my neck of the woods, we, I mean, we got to go out and have some fun. Cool. So if that, if you're talking about the video from this morning, I don't know if you saw that one, but yeah, yeah we, there's a friend of mine, uh, is flying his super cub from the North tip of Alaska all the way down to the South tip of Argentina. He's a pro paraglider pilot, um, has got, you know, a bit podiumed at the Red Bull excerpts multiple times in a row, which is the biggest paragliding competition in the world. So he's using this as an excuse to go and find all these new paragliding uh, places throughout all of the Americas. So pretty cool trip. And then my other friend JP was in town and he flew around the world in the Cessna 210 earlier this year. So cool. uh, yeah, it's just fun to link up with other like-minded individuals who, who see the value in an airplane adventure. Awesome. So Guys, what is the Flying Cowboys? What is the Flying Cowboys? I'd say above 
everything else is we're just a group of guys that love to fly and we get together a lot and fly together and that's as simple as it is you know there's there's uh there's well before Oshkosh there were eight of us after Oshkosh I think it can be argued to say that there's now nine of us (laughs) um but uh you know really the flying cowboys it's kind of interesting how it got started you know uh People have been calling me a flying cowboy since I was a kid because I did ranch work when I was a kid and I'd fly my airplane around and look for cows or help with Roundup and things like that. And so I've always been called the flying cowboy. And and, and then I met up with the Patey brothers and, you know, Jason Sneed's in there in the mix and Kevin Quinn's in there in the mix and Trent Palmer came. And you know, we just all started flying together a lot. And then we kind of were sitting around campfires and saying, you know, how can we... How can we take things to the next level? How can we be more safe? How can we open up new airstrips? How can we be good stewards of our of our airstrips? Because keeping them open isn't just hey, you know, fighting to keep the airstrip open. It's taking care of them. It's hauling trash out. We have a heavier out campaign that we've started in social media where we encourage pilots to go into these these wild locations, these backcountry airstrips with garbage bags and clean up. And, you know, and so I think the Flying Cowboys really is has evolved into a group of nine of us that, number one, we want to have fun, but not at the expense of safety or being legal. But at the same time, we want to give back and show and be an example of our great appreciation for these wonderful things that we have and you can see it in all of our videos how much we absolutely love it but how much we want to take care of it and preserve it for future generations and for new pilots that are coming in and I think that's really what the Flying Cowboys is. Cool so for those that don't know who is part of the Flying Cowboys? (laughs) Well of course obviously Trent and I Mm -hmm. and then uh, I'd I'd say Trent am I okay to say our newest member? Uh, I would I would say so. I was I was the first one voting him in. <laughs> I wonder. Well, so, yeah, we'll have to talk about that process here in a moment. <laughs> so Scott Palmer is 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 the newest, greenest, still in the uh, hazing phase of the Flying Cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got Steve Henry, and Steve Henry's a world champion stole competition. You know, he flies a just aircraft Highlander. He is a, a wizard with aircraft modifications. Just an amazing guy. He actually won a Lindy at Oshkosh this year with his Highlander. So we're now is that him screaming in the background that we hear? <laughs> yes, I, I think it's actually yes, a, a dog, and Sarah is super excited about that. Sarah is yep. Sarah's they're, our they're, dog person. They're but. giving me a shout out. <laughs> yeah. Well, he is no. green. He doesn't even really speak the language yet. Yeah. <laughs> and so then you've got the Patey brothers, Mike and Mark Patey, and you know everybody knows who they are. They they go without an introduction, but they're world champion air racers they have a couple of world records and they've been flying backcountry for a number of years as well built many aircraft very very into the the spirit of EAA and then you've got uh, Jason Sneed who is probably the the one person in the world that has the most carbon cub time in the whole world and he just is like a wizard with the carbon cub an amazing pilot and then finally last but not least um uh, Kevin Quinn, who is the the founder, the the brainchild behind Stoll Drag Racing and the High Sierra Fly In, and he's he's obviously been an aviation advocate for many years and has uh, a big following in his own. And um, have have I missed anybody, Trent? I think that's everybody. 
Oh, uh, no, Creighton King. Creighton, yeah. Creighton King, yeah. And Creighton King is uh, obviously a backcountry pilot, flies a, oh, gosh, he has a, he has three or four airplanes in his hangar. He's got a Super Cub, he's got a, a Pacer, and he also owns Last Lap Player, which is a Reno Air Racer. Hmm. Oh, excellent. Um, and then I didn't hear Sarah's name on that list, but I imagine uh, imagine that, that that vetting process is probably well underway. So we have a sub organization called the Friends of the Flying Cowboys. Oh, excellent! And and, and Sarah's the the, the sole member of that. She's the sole I'm, member. I'm the big fan girl of that. Right. Yep. And, but for some reason, she's only vice president of this. I can't figure that out as the sole member. But that's because um, I'm the president. I'm my biggest fan. Ah, Touche. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> so <clears throat> let's talk about uh, uh, how training and things. How do you guys learn to do this? You've, you've stressed uh, very admirably, you've stressed safety several times. And you're talking about capabilities of the aircraft that, uh, you know, that you're operating well within what these uh, airplanes are designed to do. And then they've been modified to do this stuff even better. Um, but what do you say to somebody who says, you know, okay, I've, you know, uh, uh, kind of a moderate time pilot. You know, I've got a tailwheel endorsement and things like that. You know, I want to go out and land someplace spectacular. Where do I start? Well, I think the, the most important place to start is recognizing that your aircraft can do way more than you can. That's true. And it can fly, for example. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and so, so knowing your own capabilities, knowing what your aircraft is capable and not exceeding the capability of either is very important. And that's kind of what are one of our biggest principles that that we operate by is knowing your limits knowing the limitations of your equipment and not exceeding either and that's very important now with that said what is that really saying well get out and practice because you can expand those limitations you know somebody getting into backcountry flying uh, go out and land on a dry lake bed and start out there get very comfortable nailing your landing spot um, and it's actually not magic. It's not anything that that I can tell you how to be a backcountry pilot. You've got to go out and do it. Uh, and Trent's a perfect example of that. You know, if you do anything over and over and over again, you're going to become very good at it. And so, you know, Trent, you know, he, he what did you start flying, what, four or five years ago? Yeah, I think four. Four, four years ago, and now I actually consider Trent one of the best backcountry pilots. And, and the reason why I say that, and I say that with confidence, is because I know that Trent goes out there and he practices, he practices, and he practices some more. He's got the right aircraft that he's comfortable in, and being comfortable in an aircraft is, is saying something. You know, I don't think I let go, you know, when I started flying of that yoke or that stick, and I didn't have the, the non-white knuckles for hours and hours and hours. And so you've got to let that comfort level come in and learn how to fly your airplane um, beyond the book. You know, the, because the, the, the books teach you the minimum requirement. And that's what the regulations are for. We consider them a minimum requirement for safety. How can you be more safe than that minimum requirement? The, well, I think the very best way to be more safe than those minimums is be comfortable in your aircraft. And that's saying a lot. So you mentioned something really interesting there about going and, and uh, you know, practicing on a, 
on a dry lake bed, and that's uh, that's intriguing to me because because typically a dry lake bed is 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 flat. Um, most of the ones that come to mind are are pretty good sized, not necessarily uh, tons of obstructions and things like that. Um, but that that resonated with me because uh, because you're saying you know get out there and find a safe place to practice, work on shorts and softs and things like that, um, and hitting your marks. But you're also starting to, am I right in saying you're also starting to get comfortable with the idea of, of uh, you know, not always necessarily flying a traditional traffic pattern to a defined and established runway? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, flight instructors train this. When you're landing on a wide runway, you're going to flare, you know, a little bit higher. If you're landing on a narrow runway, you're going to flare a little bit higher. You have to take it way, way beyond that traditional sight picture and really recognize where you are the environment you're in and be able to land your aircraft in any environment you've got to start with something simple you know when i land on a little ridge line that you can only fit one of your tires on and the other one's in the weeds there's no sight picture that you're familiar with so you've just simply got to be able to recognize where you are in relation to that terrain in a in a in a way that's well beyond the traditional quote unquote sight picture that you're taught in flight school, and the only way to do that is to just kind of ease yourself into it in a safe manner. Does that does that make sense? Oh, that makes uh, that makes perfect sense. Like you said, I think that dry lake bed example is really interesting because, you know, it's one thing to tell me, okay, just go out to your local airport and, uh, you know, set yourself this uh, the second stripe after the numbers or something like that, and and you know, confine your takeoffs and landings to that region, but. But I think there, there's that psychology of having a safe spot that doesn't happen to be a runway, but, but may be smoother and flatter than, than a lot of runways out there, for example, a good dry lake bed. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's powerful. I think that's a very important thing you hit on. Yeah, and I think, I think that perception is under, under-trained, I think, a little bit, is that sight picture, the, the ability to recognize the environment you're in and be able to make those judgment calls as to where you are in relation to that terrain, what your proximity is, what your closure rates are. Um, and, and I just think it's just practice. It's getting out there and, and bouncing a few in. I remember when I did my first dry lake bed landing, it wasn't that pretty. Um, <laughs> it, 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 the, it, you have very little depth perception. And so you've really got to figure out, okay, if I get behind the power curve and I'm truly flying my aircraft to the ground, I'm not waiting for a stall. I'm just waiting for the ground to touch the wheels. And so I've, I'm managing that descent rate and I'm behind that curve and managing my entire descent with my power. That's a skill you need to develop if you're going to be a, a, a good backcountry pilot. Now, there's a lot that, that go into the backcountry and they never get there. And that's okay, too. It's not for everybody. There are plenty of runways that are, you know, grass strips or dirt strips where it can give you a traditional sight picture. But if you want to venture out beyond that, you want to have that adventure, you want to go pioneering, you've got to figure out how to manage your aircraft in relation to that terrain without a traditional sight picture. Yeah, and, and another thing I want to just key in really quick is you got to be comfortable in the, the slowest end of your, your aircraft's handling speeds. And for all that, I mean, I definitely recommend going up high and spending time. You know, it's, it's all practice, uh, getting used to how your aircraft feels at the low speeds, maneuvering at low speeds, because, um, you know, there's certain strips that we go into that require that you are 
slow uh, well before the landing area because you're in such a tight canyon that you really you can't come screaming into it. And a lot of them, too, you don't have time to get your plane slowed up at the end. Uh, you know, if we're flying up a canyon and then there's a landing that there's no go around to, you need to be nice and stable and slow ahead of time. So getting comfortable, you know, the, it blows me away how many pilots don't go up and, and practice stalls. It's like, you know, they do it for their BFR and they did it for their, their training, but then after that, they never do it again. And it's like, you know, I think, uh, currency and proficiency get confused a lot and they say, oh, I'm current, but that doesn't make you proficient. So getting out and, and practicing that stuff uh, regularly is what you'll need. And then obviously then there comes in the whole different side of, of mountain flying techniques and, uh, you know, reading the weather as it's all different um, than, than what we're normally taught. So it, It's great to hear you t- talk about the difference between currency and proficiency. And to me, that's, that's a, a direct corollary to the concept of legal versus safe, you know, and, yeah. and, and we have our personal minimums, we have legal minimums. And, uh, and, and those, those things do not always, uh, always line up. Right. And, and one of the final points I want to bring is, as we're talking about how do you get into it, there's, there's also no substitute for good old fashioned training with an instructor. And so there's Absolutely. a couple, there's, there's a couple of programs in the country that actually are specifically tailored to backcountry flying. There's one up in McCall, Idaho. Uh, that's run by, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the school, but the, the, the main instructor's name is Christy McNichol. She's been doing it for, gosh, I think 30 years. She's actually the school I went to 15 to 20 years ago-ish when I started backcountry flying. And they take you up into the Idaho wilderness, and you start immediately learning how to fly behind the curve and all these principles that we're talking about. And they teach it they teach the ground school and this is going well beyond private pilot or commercial pilot or any of these, these minimum requirements, you know, the, the published checklists and the speeds and everything that they give you in an aircraft are really, really buffered. Like, you know, when you come in on approach on your published approach airspeed, that's on your checklist, there's a lot of float that's going to happen on that runway. And that buffer is there for a reason. When you're, when you've got a, a, a very short strip and a canyon situation, there's not a lot of margin for you to start floating halfway down that runway. You've got to no. get stopped and you've got to get, you've got to know exactly how to get that aircraft in on the ground and, and do it safely. And so you've got to figure out what the, what the, where those limits are and then where your limits are so that you can judge, Hey, you know, what? I, sorry, today's not the day for that 200 foot strip, uh, because I'm just not there yet. And I, you know, there's airstrips that I'm still circling today that I'm just not there yet. And, uh, you know, so, so th- th- that one school up in Idaho is one. And then there's another one that actually Kevin Quinn runs out of the, the Truckee Tahoe area. And so I'm not quite sure if he's got a name for his school, but you can reach him at, at Stoll Pilot on all social media. But he's also a, a certified flight instructor that's also very specific to backcountry flying. And there's probably others, but those are two that I know of. Yeah, now, I know the one I went to, or the one I've flown with, was Stick and Rudder Aviation. They're out of Boise, and same thing. Like the the first one you mentioned out of McCall, um, they fly in the Idaho backcountry. Everything you you learn is is backcountry minded, and um, I've been really impressed with the stuff. I, I how quickly I was able to absorb uh, the information and and how much you can learn, um, you know, super quickly with the right right instructor. Yeah. I, I have to ask, you mentioned uh, the instructor in Idaho, Christy McNichol. 
that is not the same uh, Christy McNichol uh, actress that Chris and I had crushes on when we were young teenagers, right? <laughs> no, I, mean, I don't think so. I mean, the fact that she's so. flying back country, I have a crush on her now. Uh, but uh, but anyway, um, it's probably before most of your time. But Chris and I raised eyebrows at each other when we yeah. heard that name. So anyway. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. So you guys, well, some of you more than others, have really exploded socially over the last year or so. Why do you think that is? Uh, mostly I think it's because Trent is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have. <laughs> no, you know, one of the things that I like to point out is, you know, I think that what we're doing is, is nothing really new except for the fact that we're just out there showcasing how much absolute fun you can have flying. Cool. That, yeah. It, it's just so I agree. Fun. I mean, and you guys make, I mean, I think a lot of times we overcomplicate some of the things we try to deliver and you guys have done it in a very simple, but very cool footage. I mean, not many people can get that kind of experience on film so what pushed me i mean if, if i step away for a second on the video note what pushed me to start making these videos was that i was so passionate about flying once i finally uh caught the bug that i just kind of felt a little underwhelmed with the videos online and then once i started flying with guys like the flying cowboys i'm realizing wow I, why didn't i know this kind of flying existed um why was it so much of the the regulations and the books and it was just kind of a little sterile to me. How come I didn't see how much fun this was through the videos? So when I started making these videos, I was like, I'm just going to get away from the regulations as far as, you know, so many people are just showing checklists and the talking to ATC and all the, you know, the pilot stuff. But to me, I was like, but that's not all of it. A lot of it is how much fun we're having out here and, and the amazing adventures that these planes allow us to go on. So that was what pushed me to start making these videos. I can't, speak as to why the they get so many views I'm, I'm you know thrilled to see that people are watching them but um i like to think just because it shows that um you can do more than just you know spend money to go up and and burn avgas we can actually go out and make memories make adventures we're using them as a tool to to get out and, and enjoy our freedoms that i'm finding that a lot of places they don't have so maybe it's part partly that well you're certainly doing a lot to uh get people excited i think not only about this kind of flying too but i, I think there's a uh, there's a trickle effect in the sense that you know they see you guys out there doing things that that somebody right now who has uh, has dreamed of flying has never done it you know they may say to themselves i'd love to do that someday or they may say to themselves that looks really cool i don't know if that i would ever get that involved in it but still i'm inspired uh, to get involved and go out and and uh, and learn at least the basics Right. And for me, that's one of the reasons, you know, Trent told me I needed to have a YouTube channel. And so I, I said, OK, I'll do it. No, but but really one of one of the main <laughs> reasons why I do the whole online social media thing is is for that purpose. You know, I started that series, the Fly With Me Friday series, and I'll go out and find somebody who and it's not that easy to find somebody who's never been exposed to aviation at all in any way. And so you go and find that person and you, you, you talk to them a little bit on the ground and, and then you take them up for a flight. And then afterwards, I have yet, I have yet to take somebody flying that had 
a negative experience. And I also like to take people flying that, that have negative preconceived notions about flying that maybe want to conquer their fears. And those are also very rewarding, at least for me as a filmmaker, to go and, you know, there was this one lady, and this hasn't made the, the YouTube channel yet, but um, we took this, this gentleman contacted us who's a pilot, and his father-in-law uh, has a wife who's just tremendously against it. She just hates flying. She doesn't want them to fly anymore. She wants them to just quit it. She wished it would just go away. But they want to buy an airplane, and they keep watching all these Flying Cowboys videos, and they just can't stop wanting to do this. But out of respect for her, they're just not doing it. So the, he reached out to me and said, hey, is there anything you can do? And I said, well, I don't think so, but I'll come over to your house, and we'll, I'll, I'll sit down and talk to your, your wife, and we'll see if we can um, get her to come up flying with me. And so I sat down with her, and, and we pulled out a... Uh, a, a internet-enabled TV, and I showed her some of the videos, and she says, okay, I'll go flying with you, and I was shocked. I was floored, you know, because she was, you know, very closed off, and at the end of the flight, she looked at her husband. She got out of the airplane, and first of all, she was just a little bit out of breath, and so I was like, oh, no. Was it too much? And I was just super gentle. I took off at half throttle. I mean, I was just being as gentle airline captain as possible, right? But after the flight, she literally got out of the airplane and she was short of breath. And so I was like, oh, crap, I ruined this person for life. It's even worse. But then she looked over at her husband and she says, OK, you can buy an airplane. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. That's wow, you awesome. had us there for a minute, but that's uh, that's a good happy ending. That's, it was that's it, like it was it was storybook ending. And I was completely shocked. And, you know, I, I just kind of turned the cameras off and let their family have a moment because they literally did have a moment. They were all three of them, the, the, her, her, her son-in-law, her husband and her were all embracing each other. Mm. And, and it was and it, and it, and it kind of transcended flying because it, you know, they always had this kind of this something in between them that they had a passion that she was dead set against. And whether it's anything in life, if you're, if you're arguing about something that's, it's bigger than just flying, it's bigger than just going out and having a good time. You know, we were able to figure out a way to make her feel comfortable. And so now it, it you know, it's different now, I, I believe, in their family. And that's why it hasn't aired, because we're we're waiting for some time to go by so that we can actually get some follow-up story into that episode, because I think that it's a little bit more special than just taking somebody flying. This is a this is a big deal to me as a, as a filmmaker. I want to tell that story about how it maybe changed that family. So I want to kind of let them evolve and see, you know, see where it goes. Maybe it won't change anything. Maybe they'll, maybe she'll be the same, you know, standoffish person about their flying, or maybe they'll buy an airplane and go flying together and it'll be, you know, the happy ending that I hope for. But that's why I do this is, is stories like that. And, and, and I can speak for myself and I know Trent probably gets 10 times the fan mail that I do, but almost every single day, somebody is sending me a message and, you know, maybe that day I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a real person and I'm kind of a normal guy and, and so I have my down days too, and I don't want to edit a video, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to do that. And then I see this message of somebody saying, hey, you know, here's my story. And they tell you this, this heartfelt, 
you know, thank you for putting out these videos. Thank you. Thank, you know, I love the flying cowboys and, you know, it's made this difference in my life. And then I'm like, well, maybe I should edit the next video. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, uh, that's that's excellent. Well, guys, we are uh, just getting up against the uh, uh, clock here on this end. Uh, so as we uh, as we wrap up, tell us uh, where can people go online to see your see your videos, follow your adventures and uh, and start to get inspired and living vicariously through what the Flying Cowboys are up to. Well, fortunately, we're not hard to find. I mean, I don't think, you know, if you if you do a search anywhere for the Flying Cowboys, you'll find any of us. But we also have a website, the fly, you know, flyingcowboys.com, and you can okay. find Trent and myself there. Um, we're also both on YouTube. Again, super easy to find. Um, if you do a search for Flying Cowboys, both Trent and I are like the number one, two, and three results. But all the, we, you know, we, ha- we all have our... Our little areas we all kind of do our own thing but we're also the flying cowboys so you know that's one of the easiest things to answer is you can find us everywhere right now excellent well trent and uh, Corey, thank you guys both so much for taking some time to uh, to join us here today we really appreciate it it's been exciting stuff and uh, i know the people out there that have been listening are uh, uh if they haven't seen uh, some of the video work you guys uh, have done as part of your group, they'll be uh, they'll be looking for it now, and we'll certainly provide links uh, when we post this uh, episode on our blog, inspiredidea.org. So, gentlemen, thank you both again for coming. Thanks uh, to uh, Cesara for filling in as uh, as a guest host. Thanks, as always, to producer Ty for all the work he has done since the time I'm saying these words to the time you hear them to make it sound coherent. Um, ongoing thanks to everybody out there who has uh, tuned in, who's listened, who's left us reviews, who sent feedback, sent in questions, uh, whether you're commenting on uh, the Facebook posts or the blog posts, again, inspired.ea.org, leaving reviews at iTunes or Google Play or any of the other uh, channels uh, through which you get the green dot. Uh, thank you for that. Please keep that up. We can't do it uh, without uh, your support and feedback. So with that and our ongoing thanks to everyone out there listening in, We'll catch up with you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot.